And turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We continue our study in the book of John. I think I'll do this morning's message first. Where's my IT guy when I need him? Due to technical difficulties. No, it's all right. I, it's, it's, for some reason, it's not where it's supposed to be. So I'm sorry. You ever lose something? <laughs> Last uh, couple of weeks ago, we talked about losing keys, but uh, this morning I lost a uh, PowerPoint. That means you're going to have to listen real hard, Okay. But it's not going to be that hard because there's really only two points this morning, okay? Uh, we're going to get the, the other five this afternoon. But uh, uh, we're going to look at uh, what is a disciple, uh, and I, more specifically, what is a Christian disciple? Uh, the meaning of Christian from the Bible has the meaning of a Christ follower. A disciple is one who is a learner or a pupil. And so a Christian disciple is a follower of Christ who is learning to be more like Christ, learning to fulfill what Christ's will is for that person. And uh, the Lord had chosen his disciples and was instructing them concerning his plan for the world when he was going to be physically gone. Uh, and we've been looking at this high priestly prayer of our Lord, how the very framework of the Christian faith can be found. Uh, we noticed uh, already how Jesus described eternal life uh, as knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ who was sent from the Father. It was a liv- It's a living relationship. It's an intimate communion with the Godhead. Uh, this relationship does not come because, uh, about because of anything good in us. Uh, It has its foundation in the saving work of Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. And we can add nothing to his saving work. Uh, We are the beneficiaries of all that Christ has done so that we who are at enmity with God uh, enter into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think we need to be clear about what a Christian disciple is. Uh, I would like to take our text here, John chapter 17, verses 6 through 9, and uh, we're going to look and see uh, uh, what uh, the key words are in, in, uh, and kind of hang a thought on each one of these key words as well as an explanation. And I would ask that you honestly search your heart during these this time asking the Holy Spirit to even confirm the reality of Jesus Christ and his saving work as it applies to you. Uh, And I would exhort us as believers to see precisely what is involved in being a Christian disciple. So you might apply yourself by the strength of the Holy Spirit uh, to live the Christian life in fullness. Now, just two of these characteristics this morning, and then we'll uh, look at the others uh, this afternoon, the Lord willing. The first one is manifestation. Now, I know that's a good word that you should have had up there on the uh, because it's kind of long, but you know how to play, uh, spell manifest. Just put manifestation there, okay? Uh, that's what we're talking about. This is someone to whom the character of God has been manifested or has been made known. Uh, 
In verse 6, he says this, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Uh, This likely was a reference to his disciples which had faithfully followed him the past three years. Uh, Approximately three years earlier, Jesus had spent an entire night in prayer in discerning God's will for for which of them to call the next day. He views them as a gift from God to assist him in his ministry and uh, then and then in the years to come. Uh, The Christian disciple is is different from the person of the world uh, because of the declaration, the manifestation, or even the revelation, we could say, uh, that has been given to him. And I want you to please understand, I'm not talking about some kind of mystical revelation, something outside of Scripture. Uh, There are plenty who have stumbled at this error, uh, that they're receiving something extra. No, God gave everything we need to know right here in this book. And so uh, uh, we're not talking about something extra, but we're talking about what He reveals to us, what He shows to us in His Word. And so the word manifested implies that he made clear. He made clear the character of God uh, to his followers. Now he says, I manifested my name. When we talk about name, uh, the idea of, a, uh, of name has a, is another way of referring to a person or the character of someone. When you say someone's name, you think of something right off the bat, don't you? I mean, uh, you think of, uh, you know, there's names that you have uh, bad thoughts about, and there's names you have good thoughts about. When you think, uh, when I talk, give you a Bible name, uh, if I say Jezebel, well, you know exactly what you're thinking right there, if you know anything about Jezebel, that wicked queen in the Old Testament. Uh, when I say David, uh, the, my, the first thing, we talk, we studied David in, in our Sunday school uh, for the last several months, so... Uh, uh, David, you might think of the man after God's own heart. Uh, so uh, when they say your name, what do people think? Uh, what's the th- first thing that comes to their mind? Well, that's a way of referring to the person or the character. So when Jesus revealed the name of God to his disciples, he was revealing the person or the character of God to them. When you begin to read through the Bible, you'll recognize that it's a continuing revelation of God. When we understand uh, what we understand of God in the New Testament through Christ has its beginning in the Old Testament. Uh, we find God revealing himself in multiple situations. And, and typically we find some name used for God which describes his, an aspect of his character. Uh, we find God revealing himself in Genesis 1-1 as Elohim. Uh, that's the word for God there, which refers to him as an exceeding great, the one full of power and might, who, the one who alone is supreme deity. Uh, he reveals himself as El Shaddai, in, uh, uh, as the Almighty God in Genesis 17 and verse 1, a title that refers to abundance and fullness and richness of God's grace and goodness toward his people. Uh, we find the title Adonai uh, is used many times referring to God as the owner, the master, the Lord of our lives. You recall uh, that time in Exodus 3 when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And when asked what God's name was, God said, I am that I am. Now we normally call this name Jehovah according to the Hebrew letters used in it. But the name refers to God's self-existence. He is the one who has no beginning, no end. He is the God who is. 
And in this truth, we find that God does not change. That He is always faithful to His character, to His being, as well as to His promises. Now, there are a series of names in the Old Testament that have Jehovah as their root. Uh, and you add an extra term to them. Uh, the Lord adds an extra term to kind of describe some more of the character, some more of the action of God toward His people. To Abraham, He was revealed as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides as he provided the ram to be sacrificed in place of Isaac. Uh, to the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings, he revealed himself as Jehovah uh, Rapha, uh, Rapha uh, who heals. Exodus 15. When Israel was victorious over the Amalekites by the hand of the Lord, they call him Jehovah Nessai. The Lord is my victory banner because the Lord had conquered for them. Uh, to Gideon, he revealed himself as Jehovah Shalom. The Lord who is our peace. In Shepherd's Psalm, in Psalm 23, we see God revealed as Jehovah Roha, the Lord who is my shepherd. To Jeremiah, God revealed himself as Jehovah Sitkanu, the Lord our righteousness. In Ezekiel, God revealed himself as Jehovah Shammah, the, the Lord who is there or ever present. And so all of these names refer to some uh, aspect of God's person, God's faithfulness, God's character. And when our Lord stated that he manifested thy name to his followers, he was referring to the character of God. Now we could, uh, while we have ongoing revelation of God in the Old Testament, we have a final and concluding revelation in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 clarifies this. He says there, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had him by, uh, by him himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high you see you look at jesus christ and you see the radiance of god's glory you see the duplication of his character in bodily form paul said in colossians 2 9 for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the godhead bodily jesus told the disciples he that hath seen me hath seen the father John chapter 10 and verse 30. He said, I and my Father are one. All the glory, the righteousness, the holiness, the purity, the justice, the goodness, the mercy, the love of the Father is found in Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to the whole point that we see made by the Lord in his words here. A Christian disciple is one to whom the character of God has been revealed. It's a striking matter when we have been walking along with the attitude or the mindset of the world toward God, when suddenly, by the grace of God, God's character begins to dawn upon our understanding. It's, sometimes it's shocking. And we're aroused to see His holiness, His worth, His purity, His majesty, while at the same time we're suddenly brought into the realization of our own sinfulness, our own unworthiness, our impurity, our depravity. All this time we've, been, we've had a head knowledge perhaps of God and we could probably say, well, I know some of his attributes. Uh, we could probably describe some of his acts, but the truth really never grabs us until he's revealed 
himself to us. And when this happens, we're humbled by the very thought of God. We're brought low to cry out for his mercy because we have seen him with eyes of understanding. Now, just as an an illustration of this, to show you the difference in someone whom the character of God has been revealed and someone else who acts really quite sincere and committed, but really never experienced uh, spirit-born revelation. Two examples in in the New Testament. One is Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the little tax collector? Uh, He heard that Jesus was coming to town, and so he was kind of a short-statured fellow, and he was unable to see over the crowds, and so he climbed up into the sycamore tree. And some of you are singing the song already in your your minds, which which you learned in Sunday school. And, uh, uh, you know, of course, uh, he climbed up there for a better view. Uh, And he wanted to see Jesus. Well, he was a tax collector, and he had a reputation of being a liar, a cheat, and a, and a crook. Tax collectors were not well-liked. Still probably aren't, but they typically made fortunes by extortion and overcharging, and Zacchaeus was no exception. Of course, we know the story of how Jesus stopped at that tree, and he looked up at Zacchaeus and called his name, telling him that he was going to come, uh, to come down for that day. He was going to come to his house And the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus hurried down that tree and gladly went with Jesus to his house. And the next thing we know, he's testifying to the Lord with a heart that had been humbled and repentant. And he said that half of his goods he would give to the poor and anyone who he had defrauded, he would restore fourfold. And the revelation of God brought him to repentance and a new life. Now, there's another fellow in the New Testament. On the other hand, we have the rich young ruler. He came running to Christ one day. He wanted to know what he could do to have eternal life. What is it I can do to inherit eternal life? He stood before Christ without humility. He was unashamedly stating that he had kept all the commandments. I've never broken one of the commandments. And when the Lord told him he lacked one thing, it was to go to sell his possessions, give to the poor, then to follow after Christ, the man said, I'm not interested in it. And he left. He was sincere and he was willing to make a commitment to some ideal and to do some great deed for God, but he never saw his standing before God. Jesus had exposed his idolatry that in the face of Christ he would dare to go on with other gods before him and there was no humility in the rich young ruler. No sense of brokenness over his sin, only sorrow that he could not buy his way to God. You see, the character of God had been revealed to Zacchaeus, and so he responded with repentance to Christ. The rich young ruler had an academic grasp of God with his study of the Old Testament, but the truth never grabbed his heart. And so he was brought low to the feet of Christ and uh, uh, for mercy. You know, it will come in different measures, but when a person has the character of God revealed to them, they'll never be the same. They'll flee to Christ for mercy. They'll abandon the exalted view of themselves and all their pride. They'll see the whole Bible in a different light. They'll know that it's, it's God's word, and they'll increase in the knowledge of God. It's, it's not something you just learn academically. But they want to know God, to understand Him more. Can you say this morning uh, of yourself 
That there's been a time in your life where the character of God was revealed to you in such a way that you've never been the same. It's brought you uh, about a new attitude toward God. Uh, a reverence and an awe has left you with a deep sense of gratitude that you've experienced the mercy of this great and mighty God. You find yourself loving God in increasing measure, and it's the love that is personal and it's real. I wonder this morning, do you realize, even as a believer, that you're to grow in the knowledge of God? As you seek Him daily through the Word of God and prayer, as you meditate on Him, as you seek to obey His Word, uh, you find yourself growing in the knowledge of God. As you begin to see all the circumstances of your life from God's perspective, And with an eye on the sovereign working of your life, you begin to grow more in the knowledge of God. That's a Christian disciple. He's someone who knows God by the revealing work of the Spirit. But then there's one other area. Not only manifestation, but identification. Identification. This is someone on whom God himself has laid special claim. I want you to notice here in our text in a similar phrase, verse 2, go back to verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all the flesh, and he shall give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's verse 2. As many as thou hast given him. Look at verse 6. It says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they are, that thou gavest them me. And look down at verse 9. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. Who is the Lord? Well, there's one more, verse 24. He says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me. Who is he talking about? Who is the Lord referring to? Well, the passage here, uh, of course, again, is the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples. That's the context And the context, again, is the last evening before his death. In John's gospel, it's virtually the last thing Jesus does before he gets arrested in Gethsemane. And it's plain that it's a prayer for those who had become followers of Jesus during his ministry. Now, if we equally understand that it extends to all followers of Jesus... Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you a person who can honestly and truly call yourself a Christ follower, a Christian? He's praying here for you as well. We are, in the words of the prayer, those whom God the Father has given to Jesus, those who belong to God, to Jesus, those whom Jesus asked his Father to protect and to consecrate. These prayers are of Jesus, uh, not only for his disciples, but for us. And we can depend on it that Jesus has never stopped praying these prayers for us. In the presence of God to which Jesus had gone, he continues to intercede for us. And our whole life as Christians is upheld by the prayer that Jesus prays for us always. Now, Jesus' prayer here is very specific and focused. He says, I pray for them. Verse 9, I pray not for the world, but for them that thou hast given me, for they are thine. The words that may well puzzle us sometimes, or even possibly offend us. Why would Jesus not pray for the world? After all, 
Isn't what the gospel says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life? God so loved the world. Why isn't he praying for the world here? Well, in chapter 17, Jesus is approaching the moment when God will give him up to death because of God's love for the world. So why does he pray only for his disciples? Now, I'm going to leave that question hanging for a moment and we'll get back to it. But notice something in these words here. What Jesus undoubtedly does is distinguish his disciples from what he calls the world. And that distinction runs through the whole passage as we read it. And we look at something of what the distinction means. And we're going to look at it under two headings. One is the uniqueness of Jesus' disciples, and the other one is the mission of Jesus' disciples. Notice first the uniqueness of Jesus' disciples. What distinguishes the disciples from the world is simply that they belong to Jesus, they do not belong to the world. And Jesus repeats this idea over and over throughout this prayer. Jesus' disciples are not in the world, they do not belong it. In other words, they don't conform to the world's values. Their ultimate loyalties are not to those of the world. They don't bow down to the idols that the world worships. Some features of contemporary worldliness, we might say that followers of Jesus are not seduced by the idols of materialistic individualism, hedonism, consumerism, careerism. Uh, You want to look up those words sometime, what those isms are. That's the world's philosophy. That's the way the world thinks. And what Jesus is even now praying for us, among other prayers, is that we should be protected from those things. The world here means something like the system of values, the life commitments. It's that which opposes God and God values. Jesus' disciples are different because they belong to Jesus. You know, belonging to something in our contemporary culture is rather ambiguous. Belonging doesn't sit well with the kind of freedom and autonomy people want and value. Belonging isn't the kind of relationship you opt in and out of as you please. And it suggests commitment and being identified with, and it clashes with the individualism of our modern society. But there are also plenty of signs of that amid the contemporary breakdown of the community and family and committed relationships. People still have a desire to belong. And we're not made for freedom from belonging, but we're for freedom in belonging. And that's what Christians find in belonging to Jesus, which of course entails also belonging to one another. Jesus' disciples do not seek an autonomous kind of identity in themselves. They find their identity in belonging to Jesus. This is the primary thing that distinguishes them from the world. Not in the first place how they live or what they do, but who they belong to. They are God's people. They're Jesus' people. And from that, of course, comes the quality of life and relating, ways of being oneself and ways of being a community that derive from Jesus. 
Now, in contrast to covetous individualism, there will be a generosity and a sharing. Uh, In place of trivialization of life that much of our culture demonstrates, there will be a passion and a commitment. In place of the culture of blame and recrimination and scapegoating, there will be compassion and forgiveness. In face of commercialization and degradation of sexuality, there will be chastity and married love. Instead of exploitation and destruction of the earth, there will be love and care for God's creation. Or so it should be. Is it really so? Aren't many of the evils that I've just listed even rampant in, within many churches? Aren't many of the good things I've listed found outside the churches, sometimes more impressively than among Christians? And that certainly shouldn't worry us. We should be glad for that. Let's keep hold of the fact that the primary point about being a follower of Jesus is not a negative one. The main point is not that we do not belong to the world, as even though that's true. But the main point is that we belong to Jesus. My life is his. And that should keep us from the holier-than-thou need to see nothing but evil in the world in order to, keep, uh, in order to be able to see ourselves as different. Well, I'm not like so-and-so. I've never robbed a bank. I've never murdered anybody. You see, we put ourselves like, I didn't do that kind of stuff. But what are we doing? Where is our focus? Is it on the Lord Jesus? This belonging is what must keep us constantly making choices for God and against whatever evils tempt us and spoil the world in which we live. So easy for Christians to kind of teeter in one direction or the other. Either so concerned about protecting themselves against the world that they withdraw into anxious, sanctimonious, inward-looking fanaticism. Or else they're so concerned to be with those on the outside, they compromise their calling by assimilation into the world. And in terms of what our Lord has given in his parables, either the lamp is hidden under a bushel or the salt has lost its savor. Either so self-enclosed as to be no use to the people in the world or so assimilated to the world we have nothing distinctive to contribute. And the way through that problem is to remember our, our unique our uniqueness, our identity lies in belonging to Jesus. The way Jesus followers, or excuse me, the way of Jesus followers is the way of Jesus himself. The Jesus of the Gospels who moved freely wherever his love was needed, compromising himself in the eyes of the holier than thou, but disturbing and attracting precisely by being so positively different from the ordinary way of the world. I wonder this morning, are we really standing out as being different from the world? I don't mean something weird, something peculiar. Or do people just see us and they hear our name that's oh, it's just another person, you know? Do we belong to Jesus and is it evident by the lives that we live? So there's the uniqueness of Jesus' disciples. And then, secondly, there's the mission 
of Jesus' disciples. Now, I said Jesus in his prayers concerned about the mission as well as uniqueness of his followers. In fact, I've already brought in mission without using the word. In the prayer, Jesus says, as the Father sent him into the world, so Jesus has sent his disciples into the world. That's missions. Again, the distinction between Jesus' disciples in the world is clear. And again, it's a distinctiveness not in withdrawal, but the service of others. The way that Jesus himself modeled for us to belong to Jesus is to take part in his mission uh, from God to the world. To live out the divine love for the world that moved God to give up his son. Now perhaps we can see why Jesus in his prayer does not pray for the world but for the disciples. It's because he has, at this point, entrusted the disciples with his own mission to the world. He's not forgetting the world. He's not writing it off. His concern for others takes the form of praying for his disciples to be faithful in making known and passing on his love to others. It's a measure of extraordinary responsibility lays on those who belong to to him. Not just as individuals, but even as a community. And that community, what's that look like? What's the group of, or the community look like? It looks like a New Testament Bible-believing church. And so, as we conclude this morning, how do those who belong to Jesus manage the call to be different and get involved? Well, there's two ways of being different. You know, one is to focus on drawing boundaries. We're going to make sure we're different because we're going to make boundaries. And we're going to focus on those boundaries between us and them. We're different because of this and this and this. The other way is to be different is to focus not on the boundaries, but on the center. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The stronger our commitment to that center the greater can be our openness to others. The more that from that center we live out what it means to belong to Jesus, the more others will be drawn to attraction and challenge that they see the way of Jesus as we live it. And similarly, our involvement with others can be sustained from our belonging to Christ. It will be an expression of Jesus' love which will fall uh, where uh, were it simply to fall in with the values and objectives of the world but which can really reach out to others, really uh, come alongside them, uh, really be where they need us to be. When our faithfulness to the strong center of our lives is Jesus. Is Jesus Christ the center of your life this morning? Is that where your focus is? Now, there are boundaries. We understand that. But that's not our main focus. If we focus on Christ... Being Christ-like, I think the boundaries will take care of themselves. How do you become Christ-like? You get to know him better each day through his precious word, the Bible. And by the way, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Let's walk in his footsteps. Let's pray. Father,